Hello, and welcome to the AppThink Podcast. My name is Trevor Newberry. And my name is Dave Mason. We talk to founders, engineers, designers, PMs, and sometimes each other about what it takes to build amazing software products. We hope this podcast helps you turn your big idea into an amazing product. Welcome back to the AppThink Podcast. Today's episode is the second in a series of three with designer Kelly Lucas, and we're tackling a big topic. How does design impact your business? You see, design is kind of a hot topic these days, but what we don't talk about quite as often is how design impacts your business as a whole. The truth is, good design can be a superpower, but bad design can wreak havoc on a business in equal measure. Products need to be designed in a way that enables users and delights them in order to deliver and grow the solution they were designed to provide. Kelly is an expert in this field, and I'm so excited for you to hear her perspective on this subject. I hope you enjoy this episode with Kelly Lucas. Kelly, welcome back. It's good to have you. I, uh, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation because it's something that I have to address with all of my clients all the time, and you are the perfect person to explain it, I believe, more eloquently than I can. So thanks for joining us. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me again. My pleasure. So today we are going to be talking about why design matters from a business perspective. So to recap, last week we covered what is design and and we dispelled some of the common myths around what design is. Most people, lay people that is, would probably consider design to be the visual aspect, but we dispelled that myth um, and talked a little bit more about the usability, um, about uh, things like affordances and making sure that people can understand and use products well and with some level of proficiency just by looking at the way that it's presented and designed. So um, today we're going to move into more of the business conversation. So I want to start off with a really big question and just let you dive in here. So how does design impact your product and your business? Yeah, I think the first thing I would love to sort of dispel a little bit further is that I don't think that design is only done by designers. I know we touched on that in the first episode, but it's really important to understand that the things that we build um, are are designed by someone possibly other than designers. So um, I don't think that designers hold the only answer to making sure that your products are successful. I do think that there is an aspect to the skill set that we have as designers that is unique not entirely unique, but we are trained to be professional question askers. I always joke that that's, that's my secondary title. And it's, it is, I think, where we tend to shine, uh, specifically in the field of UX. It's almost entirely asking the why behind everything and making sure that we don't stop asking until we understand as much as we can. The key to having good design is understanding your users. There is a huge aspect of it that when you think about building something that people can use, you have to understand their motivations, their goals, what are they trying to accomplish? And the only way to do that in a way that is really going to make a better product is your proximity to those people. When the further that you are from those people, typically the worse your product is going to be. Um, There's no big secret to it. It's just understanding people. Like I said, when you when you talk about designers, specifically UX, there's a massive piece of it where the main thing that we like to focus on is getting close to end users, understanding what they need to do. So like I said, it's not that we're the only ones with that skill set. It's just that we have spent a lot of time honing that skill set, 
Uh, and I think that that is what lends itself to being uh, a discipline that is geared towards making really good products and building more successful businesses. Yeah. And, and I think it's a great point that you just made. <clears throat> Pardon me. Your, your users are the people that, well, by definition, use your product. And if you have a product that has a goal of monetization, or if you have a product that has a goal of interfacing with another piece of software, or if you're trying to scale a product to sell, everything hinges on your users. So, you know, it's probably intuitive to a listener to hear us have these conversations like we had on the last episode and this episode, but your users are the key to unlocking all of the success for your product. Otherwise, you know, why build the product? I can think of a couple of instances where you build a product, uh, maybe, well, no, actually they have users involved as well, but there are people that build products for internal use only, but that's a lot easier to get close to the user and to understand the motivations when you're building it for um, a b2b or if you're building a b2c product you have to get really really close to those users Um, i was wondering if you have because i have a couple of these but especially in the work that you do i was wondering if you have a couple of or even just one example of how a small design change has had a pretty profound impact on uh, the usability and the the user acquisition rates for a product yeah, I can talk about probably several examples of work that we've done with Airship, but um, one of the ones that I, that I refer back to a lot, I, I'm going to tell the story, uh, is about Disney World and Disneyland. There was this study done, gosh, probably in the late 90s. Um, Jared, this is a story that Jared Spool tells a lot, and he's you know one of the the, the gods of UX. Uh, but he talks about this in a lot of his conferences, and you know we always think of Disney World as this company who has users at like the heart of what they do. Um, it's where they have you know the bands to get into the parks and all of that, and making sure that you know the experiences are really good. But if you rewind about twenty years or so, uh, Jared Spool ran some usability testing. And if you've never heard that term, it's just observing people use software that you've built. Um, There's several ways to do it, but typically it would require, um, Trevor, if you were using the software, I would say, Trevor, I want you to go do X, Y, and Z and give you some tasks to do and then observe what it is you do. So it's just a way of learning how people use software. Um, But Jared Spool observed some people using uh, the reservation software that Disney World used. And he observed hundreds of people using it. And he would say, okay, I'm going to give you a task. And I want you to look at the monorail at Disney World. And I want you to find the cheapest hotel on the monorail. Okay, great. Simple, easy to do. And they say, yep, I understand the instructions. Click, 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 click. Okay, it looks like it's, you know, X resort. And he says, okay. And what was actually happening is when the person was looking for a specific hotel on the monorail, um, the hotels that were showing up were not only the ones at Disney World, but also the ones in Disneyland. And so the person would end up looking at the monorail and saying, okay, yep, I'm going to go stay at X hotel. And Jared would say, okay, and it's on the monorail. And they would say, yep. And he would say, you know, okay, you're, you're like 3000 miles off. And I don't think the monorail goes there, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so he would say, okay. And uh, how far is it from Epcot? You know, he's like trying to kind of prompt them into understanding what happens. And the user would say, nope. uh, Yep. It's on the monorail and, you know, click, 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 click. Okay. Yep. I've got it reserved. I'm ready to go. Um, What they figured out was that 
this was happening so much that Disney World and Disneyland would block off entire blocks of rooms at their hotels for this exact scenario. So this was a problem that they did not even know they knew was happening, but the data that they're looking at on the website did not tell that story. Um, the only way that they figured that out was sitting next to people and observing it happening. It was one out of 10 people that this happened to um, that were trying to go to Disney World or Disneyland and ended up with a reservation in the wrong place when they got to their you know, vacation of a lifetime. That is such a that has such a profound impact on your business it's and that's you know that's an example of a mistake that was made right in the design um that just i mean that's an amazing amount of money that they were probably losing and and also reputationally speaking so you know they those users were probably making bookings that then surprise you arrive at Disney World in Orlando and you don't have a booking, right? That's just a disaster scenario. You've lost the money. You've had a bad. Uh, you've got a bad reputation now. You've got an angry customer. It's that is a really really great example. That is like a worst case scenario example of how design can potentially. You know, Disney is a massive company, right? So Disney can absorb the reputational costs, the operational costs, the refund costs, they can do that. But if you're bootstrapping your own app, your own piece of software, and you launch and something like that happens and it slips under the radar, that's a that can be a product killer. That can be a business killer. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it also tells another tale that tends to get kind of swept under the rug or just under notice. There's a big push these days for data driven design that, you know, you should know everything that you need to know about your users, and then you will have all of these questions answered. And it's just not the case. We hear it every day at work where we meet, we'll meet with a stakeholder and they say, um, or we ask them the question, where do your users come from? Are they coming from desktops? Are they coming from mobile sites? Uh, where does your e-commerce come from? Which platform? What do we need to build for? And what we almost always hear is, uh, you know, the, the data is telling the story of, well, they come from the desktop uh, or they only come from the mobile app and they complete their purchases on one or the other. And what the missing piece on that is why are they doing it? There's a lot of situations that I've read about that, you know, the e-commerce platform could be broken on mobile. They can't check out. It gets frozen. It throws an error only on mobile. So then they have to go back to the website. So it's just not understanding the context that's driving that data. I, so I think it's twofold. And all of these decisions impact your business. If people are only coming from their mobile app because that's the only device they have, they can't purchase something on your e-commerce platform, you're never going to understand the why unless you talk to them nothing about the data is going to automatically tell you the full story. Mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, that's just a really great example. And, and I agree. I, I love data like the next person. And I think that data driven decisions generally tend to be more accurate and, and yield better results, but it can't be a substitute. It can't take the place of having a conversation or watching someone interact with a product. I know you and I have done usability testing together um, with a product that we've both been working on, and the results were fantastic. We we teased out a lot of improvements to be made uh, for our users, right? And, and we were lucky enough to do that before we launched the product, right? So we didn't have to experience those pain points, you know, in front of an actual user, we were able to actually put that in front of somebody and get that feedback that 
not just quantitative, but qualitative feedback and be able to make those adjustments um, as we were going along. You know, and I think it's not just mistakes that happen either, right? It's just, you know, last on the last episode, we talked about affordances. It sometimes is a matter of someone understanding what to do. Um, sometimes, as we talked about too, it's, it's a matter of friction. So I've got a <clears throat> client right now, and one of the uh, updates, one of the feature, oh, it's, it's not really a feature update, it's really just a usability update that we're making is stripping out the fields needed to sign up for the application. All right. So we thought about going with something like Google sign on or Apple sign on. Um, and we may end up doing that, but the process of integrating that with our product was going to be pretty expensive. So we said, Hey, look, let's just test if removing some of the friction before we make that investment actually increases signup rates, right? So if people are actually creating accounts just by removing a line that we're requiring them or one or two lines, let's see if that has an impact. And you know what it did, right? And so now my client feels a lot better about saying, you know what, 15 grand to do X feels a whole lot better since we've validated the fact that this was a friction point and now we can make a really strong improvement here. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a really big benefit in seeing people use software. It's actually one of the things that drove me into UX. I came from a graphic design back, background, and I didn't get to observe people looking at my designs. And once I realized that there was there was this whole other field where you get to understand how people react to your design, there was no stepping back for me. And Trevor, I think you make a really great point when you when you do observe people using anything that you've created the process of creating it introduces biases. So the things that I would name things are not immediately clear to others, depending on your background, depending on, you know, is English your first language? Is, you know, just what does this stuff communicate to you? The moment that you, you know, see five or 10 people going through using something, that's when you become aware of a lot of these things. The The data is not going to tell you that story. I, I love the, the example that you just mentioned about sign up. It reminds me of a very small tweak and a very famous story that goes with this, but it's called the $300 million button. And the only change, when you were asking about what changes can you make to, you know, to fix some of this stuff, this circumstance was one change. It was one change that increased this particular company's bottom line by $300 million. And it's very similar to what you were talking about with the sign up. What they realized is this was for a very large e-commerce platform. The story does not disclose who the client was, but someone would go through the process of adding things to the cart. They would get ready to check out and it would ask for your email and password, which doesn't seem like a big deal. Almost every platform in the world asked for this. There was no guest checkout. There was no other option other than, uh, you know, just put in your, your email, your password and continue. Well, what they realized through lots and lots of, uh, you know, observational studies is when people got to that point, they didn't know what email they had registered for. They didn't even know if they had registered before, period. They would try multiple different email addresses, password combinations, reset the password, but they weren't even sure that they had originally signed up with it. So there were a lot of those circumstances going on. And what they figured out when they looked at the actual data was almost 45% of users had 10 accounts. Yeah. 
<laughs> because they just wanted to buy this thing. And so it's it's just this really interesting story where you don't realize what business impact the design has until you really get close to the people that are trying to use it. And just changing that that button from, you know, sign up to I think it was adding a guest checkout or, you know, something that just tweaked that process just just a little bit. Uh resulted in 300 million additional dollars that year for them just that so it's it's insane to think about the impact that just a single button or just a single word change can have for people i i could not <clears throat> agree with that more it's it's I, I i'm reminded every single day and and run into this every single day that the the things that make the biggest impact for our users they tend to be small things. They tend to be, uh, even in hindsight, this very hindsight is 2020 sort of concept of, they tend to be kind of common sense. You know, when, when you see them, you go, Oh, that makes sense. That's a terrible idea. But it brings us back to the point of you have to talk to your users. You have to, you have to interview your users. You have to watch them use your product. And, And, you know, one of the questions that I get is, well, Trevor, how do I know where to start? How do I know what to look at? I've got a product, right? It's in the market. Someone, people are downloading it, but you know, we're not getting the results we want and I don't know where it is. How do I find out where to start? And I think you covered that correctly get them on a Zoom call, find a way to get in touch with your users, get them on a Zoom call, especially in today's environment of COVID-19, and watch them interact with your product. Just look for those places where there is friction and where where the processes are breaking down. Yeah, I, I and I think that is where data can tell part of the story. A lot of times it does kind of give you these these hypotheses. So that's kind of what we look for is, boy, this doesn't quite seem right. Where can, what is the why behind it? Why are people dropping off of this one page at exorbitant rates? And I think that to your point, you know, usability testing isn't expensive. It doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to be a, no, it's not hard either. There's a lot of situations where when I've worked in the past, where it was seen very much as the, you know, UX designers do that. Um, but really all it is is saying, well, what are, what are the most common flows in what tasks are people trying to do? And just ask them to do that task. Just watch them. You will learn something from every single person and you can learn it in 10 minutes. And it also doesn't mean that the change is going to be expensive all the time. It could just be a label change. It could be a button change. It could be, oh, they didn't even notice the button that was there. Okay. Maybe it needs to be a brighter color. It's all of those little things that, you can do it properly and cheaply. And the nice thing is, is if you do have a, someone who knows how to put designs together, you can also test this before it's coded. So that's one of, the, I think, the biggest benefits of having someone who understands design in general is being able to put this stuff together as a really cheap, quick prototype to validate it before you build it. That is such an important thing to understand is that's when it gets expensive. It's after you've coded it, after you've built it, then you ask people to test it. Well, you know, all of those development hours are expensive. We What we can do with design, we can do in 15 minutes versus, you know, a, a developer having to take several hours to change something. Uh, so it's, it's really beneficial. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Um, the earlier you can do this sort of usability testing, the better. And then there are stages at which it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, when the earliest stage concepts, we still do rapid prototyping with those folks, but 
that's really, instead of making changes to features, it's more or less just to find out if we're going to build it in the first place, you know, just to find out if it's useful in the first place. But I think the principle applies in the same way. So, you know, at this point we've covered, you know, there is an obvious and profound business impact. There's a bottom line impact to good design. And that good design is not just about how, how pretty something is. It's about making sure that your user can get from point A to point B in, in the, with the least amount of friction um, so that you can generate the revenue or whatever other metric it is that you're using to measure success for your product that you're looking for. So one of the things I wanted to transition into, though, is that there are other things that design impacts that are really important for businesses, and this has to do with accessibility um, and compliance around like privacy um, and disability laws. So I wanted... I know you're really passionate about that stuff, and so I wanted to let you kind of take that and run with it. I am. Uh, there, and Trevor, I'm going to pick on you a little bit, but there's so much more to design that is outside of even just accessibility and ADA compliance. And while those are super important, those often come at the end of building something. So you can imagine we've already determined to build this particular app. Uh, and it needs to be compliant with uh, WCAG you know, 2.1 guidelines, which is basically just saying it's accessible to uh, people with varying abilities. Okay, well, that's part of it, right? So, But if you step back, there, there is a more umbrella term that encompasses all of that, and it's called inclusive design. So when you think accessibility, it tends to be more on the end of the product lifecycle. What inclusive design is focused on is making sure that the things that we build and who makes them are more inclusive to people at the forefront. So in making sure that, for example, gaming remotes, this is, this is a really important tale that I recently read in a book called Mismatched. But the entire book's premise is about mismatched situations that people encounter with software that they come across. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a disability. It just means that there's some sort of mismatch in this thing that you're trying to use, whether you're standing out in bright light and you can't see the screen that you need, whether you're trying to watch videos and there's no subtitles, but you're in a busy marketplace and you can't hear. Those are the kinds of mismatches that I'm talking about. And Part of that is absolutely accessibility. It is making sure that any software that we build is compliant to ensure that people can access it. Um, when I mentioned gaming remotes, there was an interesting part of that mismatch book where they talk about the way that design or the, the way that gaming remotes are designed is that they are designed specifically for people with two hands. There's no other way to use a gaming remote if you only have one functioning hand or you don't you can't have any use of your arms it is exclusively designed for people with two hands so even when you look at that it's missing a lot of people when you talk about the business impact of video games well you've already said that the only people who can play these games are very specific people who have use of two hands well okay but what about everyone else that's completely unfair and i i can only imagine how it feels to people who love video gaming and would love to take part in that. So part of what inclusive design does is, is it looks at it from multiple angles. You can look at the product that you have and think about, well, who can we be excluding by building it this way? Is there anything else that we could tweak about this that would make it more inclusive? And there's this great example in, in that part of the book where they talk about World of Warcraft. Um, and 
the way that that game was built was mostly around combat. And they're interviewing um, a man who does not have use of his arms. And on his wall in his bedroom, he has a big pegboard with all different types of gaming remotes that he's never been able to use. But he really loves gaming. So what he really loved about uh, the World of Warcraft is that he got to participate in a different way. So he has voice control actions that he can incorporate with the game that will put multiple moves together in like a package. It could say like, prepare for battle. Okay, and then the game would go and do all of these things for him instead of him having to use a remote. Um, but what they figured out with World of Warcraft is that there's this whole segment of people who were only looking at the economics of the game and not interested in battle at all because they couldn't actually do some of it. And what they found most interesting was they would enjoy playing the game in a very different way. It wasn't the way the game was intended or to be designed or used, but... Uh, this particular gentleman decided to just build uh, or create leather and he sold leather and he focused on like the business building and building coalitions through that. So he, by using this game and because it was adaptable for him, he got to enjoy the game in a very different way. But I think it, it talks about the business value of considering other people when you're building the stuff. The less people that you're excluding, obviously, the more market share that you have for your business. It's not just a feel-good thing. It's not a thing that we should just do because we're nice. Well, sure, that's, that's fine. But ultimately, it needs to be beneficial for a business also. Well, that's, that's a, that's a no-brainer. Just make sure that you're excluding less people with the stuff that you design. I love that. That's great. And yeah, you're 100% correct. Um, I think that generally speaking, and I I probably don't use the right language to to speak about these things, but building for and considering, you know, edge cases, right, for um, the people that do have to interact with products and with technology, or even just the physical products that we interact with day to day, it it generally both improves society. Um, it, pr- it it improves the um, equity in society, right? But it also it's it's also good business. It's it's a good thing to do all the way all the way around. So, um, and we're very lucky. to have folks like Airship and like yourself that can help their clients to coach their clients to say, Hey, have you considered this? This is a potential edge case that you might want to consider here. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think when you read through some of the research is that making these changes often makes everyone else's experience better. I can give you an example from last week on a new project that we started it's software for people who work on foundations. And when we were talking with the client, a lot of what they kept saying was, oh, we've got these videos that we want to show the person whose home we're fixing. We want to educate them. We want them to understand the steps in the process of what we're going to fix, what the problem is. And something caught my ear when they were talking about, well, I'm in this house with other people. There might be dogs barking. There might be kids screaming. They might be busy. They might be you know, working from home. And when they're talking about these videos, the first thing I thought was, after reading this book, well, why can't it have subtitles, uh, closed captioning? Because not only might they encounter someone um, who has lost their hearing, um, it also benefits people whose house is just really busy like mine. My dog might be barking, my kid might be screaming and chasing their sibling. But just those little things, it doesn't mean that it's a more expensive product to build. It just means that the people who are using it have a better experience. The other thing that I often think about is font sizes. We fight with this a lot. When we make font sizes too small and people can't see them, 
that's a problem. But it's not just people who have low vision. It's also people who got their eyes dilated that day at the doctor. So these can be temporary situations, they can be permanent. But I think it just goes back to these are everyday people and there is no just perfect human. So we need to account for, you know, a broader, a broader spectrum of, of humanity. So that's that's kind of the goal there is is making sure that we don't have blind spots and biases that, that prohibit us from building it for other people to use. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So <clears throat> one of the things I kind of wanted to cap off with today on this subject is to talk, you know, last time when we, uh, on the last episode, I should say, we sort of ended with, you know, how do we identify good design, right? How do we orient ourselves in a way that we can learn to see good design? Because as we learn to see good design, we can learn to implement good design in our own use cases. So the question that I have today is, you know, what are the steps that we can take um, either as service providers like you and I, or, you know, if the, someone listening is building an app, uh, you know, a mobile app or, or a web app, what are the steps that we can take to make sure that we're considering design from a business case as well, right? And we've talked about some of these, but let's recap if we need to. Yeah, I think when you think about design and the the business value, a lot of it is really just making sure that you are close to the people that you're designing for. It's going to be impossible to design a product if you don't understand what people need to do. Um, like I stated earlier, it's not a magic wand. It's not, if I hire a designer, I'm suddenly going to have better products. Uh, like I said, our skill set is more behind the why and helping other people understand the why. It's not just for our own benefit. So I think when you think about building better better products and the business behind them, it's ultimately understanding the people that the business is is providing. And I think that that is really the key. I, I don't think that there is any reason that just anybody can understand this stuff. I think it's it's a matter of understanding what it is you need to understand and then educating yourself a little bit. I mean, so there are plenty of articles online about how to do usability testing. There are plenty of, you know, short five minute videos on doing this yourself. I don't think it has to be expensive or, you know, be lengthy. I, I think, you know, focusing more on uh, equipping yourself to do some of this stuff is is really beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what I would add to that is that I think the resistance that I get, in fact, I'm experiencing this right now um, with a client is that it slows the process down, right? It slows you down a little bit to get out of the building and go, you know, as they say, get out of the building um, and go talk to your customers or go talk to your users, it slows you down. And people that are putting six figures behind a product, they want their product in the market as fast as possible. And so I think this is a particularly important set of topics that we're covering today because the the what I impress on people at every juncture is that this will make your product better and it will end up making your bottom line healthier. You know, I have <clears throat> someone right now who I am uh, submitting a proposal to and you know, this is a classic case like you just discussed is that sh this person has built a product in a vacuum. It's her and her co-founder uh, and they've built a product and, and they haven't gone out and talked to anybody. And I have had to make the pitch of, I know that this is going to slow down your development. I know that this is going to slow down the process of getting more users, but 
you have to stop, go back to the drawing board and conduct these interviews and put your product in front of people and watch them use it in order to really understand how you can leverage the money that you've got available to you, the time that you've got available to you in a way that's going to get you the best results. Because if you continue down the road of doing these things in a vacuum, you're going to build a product that no one wants or even worse, gets close to what someone wants and just creates a bad reputation for your product. I, I love that you mentioned that there you cannot overstate how important it is to discover that information sooner. You can either discover it after you've spent $150,000 building something, or you can find it out within four or five days of building out a prototype, doing the user interviews, getting the, the feedback loop closed, and understanding you need to pivot within four or five days instead of after six months of development. I, I cannot overstate how important that is that you invest the time that you have into building the right thing instead of figuring out way too late in the game that you've built the wrong thing and it's useless. Th those changes are so much cheaper to make at the forefront instead of at the end of the project. I, I see it all the time, Trevor, and I, I do the same kind of educating constantly. And it's it's a misunderstanding that while, yes, it it's not even a delay. I, it, I want to challenge even that that framing of the problem because all you're doing is understanding. You're understanding more about the people. That is never a waste of time. I, I can, like I said, I cannot overstate that. It is never a waste of time to understand the people better that are going to be using your product. And any time that you can fit that time in, I would say it is the mo most important thing that you can do. Yeah, I could not agree more. And, <clears throat> you know, the, the most heartbreaking uh, experiences that I have with my clients is when I when I get a client that has built a $150,000 product and my job is to say, this is a solution in search of a problem, right? You've built something that no one really wants and we have to go back and fix that. And those are always really uncomfortable situations to be in. I think that my clients are usually thankful that I'm there to say that and to help guide that process, but it doesn't eliminate the the real heartbreak of, of saying, oh, this is another fifty dollars or $60,000 that we're going to have to invest in not the testing, because like you said, that's easy. And and that's usually the, the, the insult to injury of it is that actually this is pretty cheap and pretty easy to do. But then when you get that feedback, when you get that data, you have to turn around and make changes. And it's just, it's expensive. Yeah. It is. And it is heartbreaking. You see it a lot where people have this great idea and it's like they're just missing this like one piece of value behind it. It's not that the entire idea was garbage or that the code is really bad quality. It's often that they just didn't capture the value in the thing that they built or that they could have done it for cheaper if they just understood sooner that you know it's just this one feature that people really need and you spent time building all of these peripheral features but missing the heart of it. That's why these products are not successful and you could have found out sooner. That I guess that's what I keep reiterating. When do you want to find out that information? You can wait until it launches and it fails or you can spend the time at the forefront you know, understanding people. Yeah. And there's one last thing that I just, <clears throat> just had this thought as, as we were wrapping that up is I really, to do this well, right. As a founder, if you don't have a designer that you have access to, one of the big hurdles that I run into is there's a sort of a, uh, people hold their idea for their product a little preciously, right. They hold that idea, the, the, archetype that they've built in their mind about their product and 
what a lot of this process does is actually forces you to turn around and look at that and kind of blow it up, right? And so what I would challenge listeners to this episode to do is is not only to engage in the process of good design and of interacting with your your users, but also to be open to the fact that, you know, something that you're really, really passionate about can either be a great hobby or it can be a great business. And oftentimes the difference between a really great business, a great product, and something that ends up just being a hobby or a failed product is the willingness of the founder to listen to their users and let go of their their preciousness about that concept. So the people that I work with that that do the best are the people that are willing to say like, I have been thinking about this as this thing for six months and I was so in love with it and then I got this feedback and as painful as it is, I know I have to pivot my product. I know that I have to change this product in a way that will fundamentally alter the image that I had been holding of that product. And so I, I guess to to leave it at that is to say, you have to, if you want to have a successful product and a business built around that, you have to have good design and sometimes the process of good design means confronting the fact that your preconceived notions and biases were incorrect about your product. I I totally agree. And it's honestly one of the most difficult discussions that we often have at work every day is helping people understand where they were wrong, because that's also not a good feeling. And it's it's such a human emotion to not want to be wrong in any circumstance, especially when they've spent time, money, resources on this idea that they hold very dearly, which is very understandable. But, you know, I go back to when do you want to find out that something was wrong? Do you want to find out before you've spent you know, a quarter million dollars or after you've spent it? Because I can tell you which I would want to be. And it's it is always uncomfortable to bring someone the data that shows or the interviews that show that your idea missed a little bit, but we can pivot. And I think you have to be very comfortable understanding that your idea may be very close, but it may not be perfect. And that's okay. Because if you go through the process and you figure out that you were spot on, then you've just confirmed that, yes, I can now go build this thing. If it's slightly wrong, well, now I can pivot and make it more of what it should have been to begin with. And it's, it's not too late to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. Kelly, this has been great. Is there anything that you want to add to this conversation? Anything that <clears throat> I've missed that we haven't covered? Oh, I, th- I I could go on and on, but I, I think <laughs> we I think we probably beat a dead horse at this point. Yeah, yeah. This is good. Well, thank you as always. We've got one more uh, episode coming up in this series where we're going to be talking, we're going to kind of be wrapping everything up with a bow and talking about design for founders. So uh, we've talked about how how to identify good design. We've talked about how to execute good design from a founder perspective. So now we're just going to talk a little bit more about how to combine all this stuff and some really practical steps for uh, first-time founders, for non-technical founders, for how to how to get started with this stuff. So uh, looking forward to that. But as always, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Trevor. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to AppThink. If you want to learn more about how you can turn your big idea into an amazing product, head on over to appthink.io. That's A-P-P-T-H-I-N-K dot I-O to check out our free resources. And if you're ready to get started building your product, sign up for one of our courses to help you save time and money building an amazing, successful product.